this morning we're going to look at Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, and I think you're going to have it there on the, uh, on the screen. Uh, but I'm also going to reference some other uh, sections there in Luke 24. So if you have a Bible app, if you have a Bible available, it'd be good to, to pull that out uh, as well. Let me go ahead and read. This is going to be Luke 24, 1 through 12. It says this. And on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed, uh, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. And they and rise, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Now, I'm going to move down to verse 22, so you can listen or you can follow along. It won't be on there. Moreover, some, this is later on in the day, and two men are walking along a road. Two, two of the 11, they're walking along a road, and they, they come across a stranger who reveals himself to be Jesus. And they have this dialogue. And it says, moreover, they're telling him, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. And so they drew near to the village in which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. That's the word of the Lord. Uh, pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, help us to remember that what they experience in many ways we experience. And so when we think about somebody rising from the dead, Lord, would you give us aid? Would you give us understanding? 
would you make this extraordinary teaching practical for our lives so that we understand you in greater ways and therefore we understand ourselves in greater ways? Pray this in Jesus' name. And the people said, Amen. Amen. So Luke, being a physician, he writes this exacting account. He gives us really the facts of the morning, doesn't it? Uh, this is a forensic account. He's laying out exactly what took place that day. Later on, uh, he lays out exactly what took place that evening, uh, very practical ways. And yet, it isn't a cold account. It's not a cold forensic account. If you look at the passage, you see that there's all kinds of emotions taking place. Now, there's fear. There's grief. There's, uh, there is uh, confusion. There's tremendous doubt and despair. And ultimately, we see that there's joy. There's joy when it comes to Christians understanding, comprehending, comprehending that God became man, lived the life that uh, humans were designed to live, died the death that humans uh, should actually die, but then was and raised to life again. But there's a, a myriad of emotions that take place within that story. Those are all natural. Those are all uh, uh, appropriate, you might say, for each and every one of us as we come to the story of, of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at a story like this, we should in many ways say their response is, is in a way our response. I can relate to them. But what is really helpful here in the middle of that passage Full of exacting details, full of emotions, is one particular question that has tremendous theological import and also real practical import for us. And that is, when Jesus, or when the angels say to these this group of people, "Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead?" And of course, there's a very basic understanding there, right? They're saying to Jesus's friends. Why are you looking for him when you know he sh when you when you should know he's alive? He's not with the dead. So why are you doing something that you know? And you you know that he why are you doing something that he described uh, would not happen? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? But it's also incredibly important for us too. Because human nature is to look for the living among the dead. We look to things that only God can provide. Scripture says. We look for things to provide us hope, and joy, and meaning, and purpose in ways that only God can ultimately satisfy. We always, time and time again, are always looking for the living and the dead. We're always, always ascribing value uh, of life and joy and hope and meaning and purpose for things that cannot ultimately satisfy. And so that is a question that really gets us to probe this passage. It gets us to probe resurrection. It gets us to probe our own, examine our own hearts and minds. So let's do that by looking at this text and thinking about the resurrection. Let's ask what it is. Let's see what it is. Let's see how it's received and why that matters. So thinking about the resurrection, what is it? How is it received? Or why does it matter? What is the resurrection? When we think about the resurrection, one way to think about it is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ marks a new beginning from the most hopeless of places. 
The resurrection of Jesus marks a new beginning in human history from the most hopeless of places. And we see that a little bit here, don't we? It marks a new beginning from the most hopeless of places because it begins, according to the humans in this passage, in a grave, in an empty tomb. But the language of the heavenly creatures is a little bit different, a little more nuanced, and I think much more profound. They say, why do you look for the living among the dead? When they use that kind of language, these angels, they're inferring something much, much more, something much more evocative. They're referencing a very real, a very antithetical place, a very real, a very antithetical existence. Jesus was laid to rest, and he was resurrected from among the dead. Now, when we think about what it is to experience death or to be among the dead, I'll say for myself, I don't really understand that that well. I think the first time I maybe saw a dead body was probably in my 20s. It was very quick, very brief. Uh, this community would have seen death on a daily basis. They would have known the finality of death. They would have known what it was like to love and lose people, never to see them again. Not just once, they would have, they would have seen this on a, on a regular basis. You know, in that particular time, you know, families would have 12 children in order to raise five or six. It's, there was so much death in the world. And I grew up in a time and, you know, in history in which death was not seen very much. So I didn't see it very often. And some of you are about my age, but that's actually changing, I think. With technology, we are more and more aware of how prevalent death is in the world. It might be lived vicariously, but we see in our homes, on our screens all the time, the reality that we live among the dead. But this is a world replete with death. And so they would have known what God experienced. That God made himself, put himself among the dead. But his re the resurrection means there's a new beginning here. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that he has come from the most hopeless of places. And therefore, there's plenty of reasons to rejoice this morning. To say, this is a new story. This is a new chapter. When we look at this passage, the world is not all that it seems. There is hope in the world. Despite all that we see, there's hope. This is a new beginning. Um, N.T. Wright, or excuse me, C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright. <laughs> C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. So the resurrection of Jesus, it marks a new beginning. It marks uh, because it, Jesus rises from the most hopeless of places. But I also think knowing that, the way that Christians express that is incredibly <clears throat> important. The way that Christians ex express Jesus' triumph, Jesus' victory, makes all the difference in the world because that victory comes out of the midst of tremendous pain and suffering. 
And we experience that victory on earth among the dead and among those who are experiencing death. And so, therefore, I think when we use language like he is risen in our hearts, it should help us get out of bed in the morning. When we're suffering, that should bring a balm to us. And yet, if we use it as kind of like a, a bumper sticker or a kind of band-aid to try and heal somebody's wounds when they're in the midst of experiencing uh, the symptoms of death, then we're not an agent of hope and healing. But, but we're rather contributing to the problem. One writer that I admire, Clarissa Mole, she talks about, as a Christian, what is it like to experience Easter in light of the fact that her husband had just died. She says the hardest part of Easter is actually the empty tomb. And the reason it's the hardest part of Easter is because she says when she looks at the empty tomb, she recognizes there's only one. In all of human history, there's only one empty tomb. And she says, and I'm in pain because it's not my husband's. So she says, for almost four decades, I've read and sung the gospel truths of the redemption story. I affirm the historicity of the cross. I believe the witness of the empty tomb, but I never understood the sheer audacity of Jesus's promises until the day I stood at the fresh grave of the man I loved. When my shadow fell across the soil that would cover Rob's body, when I witnessed firsthand death's heartbreaking finality, when with every ounce of my being, I cried out for, for the grave to open and bring my husband back to me. The first painful Easter, I thought, a good Christian should rejoice with abandon in the face of grief. I should stand on the promises of Jesus and lift my eyes and unadulterated hope of eternal triumph. I should shout, oh, death, where is thy sting? Instead, all I could do is weep for all that yet remains unfinished. On that sunny sun Sunday morning, I lamented the curse that is defeated now and not yet. I cried for my beloved husband, who still lies asleep in Christ. On that first Easter, I stood at a tomb longing for Rob to come out, but his grave in that quiet cemetery remains unchanged. Only Jesus' tomb is empty. There was a time when I would have questioned only, isn't Jesus' resurrection enough? But since Rob died, I've realized the empty tomb was never meant to fully satisfy our longings. And that's why I say, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean? It marks a new beginning from the most hopeless of places. The resurrection of Jesus is not meant to take away our longings. In many ways, it amplifies them. But it's meant to give us tremendous hope because we recognize, when we look around the world, there are marked and unmarked graves everywhere. But there is one that we must give account for. There's one grave that we have to, in a sense, solve, we have to come reckon with, and that's the grave of Jesus Christ. That's the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And therefore, it's the reason we can have hope. And if the empty tomb of Jesus, uh, uh, if the empty tomb um, is that of Jesus, then not only can we have hope, not only should we give thanks, but we should praise because he's not some random stranger, but he is the one who said, I'm going to die as God and be risen again to a new creation. 
And so one commentator says this, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God. And Christian faith is absolutely true. So it's the beginning of a new creation. That's what it is. How do we receive it? We look at the passage, and I think we can see that we receive it holistically. And what I mean by that is that we receive it with our hearts and our minds. We receive it with all of ourselves. And it takes all of ourselves to, to grapple with the information that's given, the, the resurrected life of Jesus of Nazareth. Renee Brown in her recent uh, HBO special said something incredibly insightful to this conversation. She says that when it comes to human behavior, people react first from their emotions, second from their intellect. She says, we like to think we're rational beings, who occasionally have an emotion and flip it away, but then carry on being rational. But rather, she says, we're actually emotional feeling beings on rare occasions who, who on rare occasions think. And I know that's really challenging for us as New Yorkers or some of us as New Yorkers, right? Many of us here, you know, function in the sense like we're brains on sticks. That we, we're proud of our cognitive ability, are proud of our ability to to make decisions, to, uh, to you know, be cerebral and not get ourselves uh, caught up or bogged down in, in the, the emotional life of a particular situation. A lot of us see ourselves as brains on sticks. What she's essentially saying is that every human being is a heart with feet. Every human being, first and foremost, is a heart with feet. It's only after we experience our emotions, then do we begin to make decisions. Then we begin to process. And we see that here in the passage, whether it's the women who, who are engaging with the angels, whether it's Peter who hears from the women and all of a sudden he's running right to the tomb, or it's the 11 there that say of, of, the, of the account from the women that that's just nonsense, that's, that's just an idle tale. None of them are responding first and foremost through their intellect. There, none of them are neutral. All of them are biased. All of them have, are forming an opinion based on their emotions first. And that is something that we all, uh, something we all do. I'll admit, as a Christian, ideas like hope and redemption, mercy, justice, those resonate with my soul. And I'm glad to find that uh, that they, they're here in this Bible. And it's a kind of a chicken and egg thing. I'm not sure exactly what came first. When I hear the, the truths of the Bible, I go, oh my goodness, that sounds exactly what I live for. That doesn't mean I actually live that way. But my heart sings when I hear of those kinds of things. But the point I'm trying to make is whatever we believe, we will begin to create a doctrine, a set of ideas around that particular belief. Not because we're coming from here, but because we're coming from here. And so I want to live in a world of goodness and justice and mercy and hope and grace. But I also have definitions of freedom 
and talk against those very notions. I have uh, I have my own selfish uh, ways, thoughts, patterns that are always in conflict. So when we come to a story like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're coming in conflict. We're not just coming as thinking beings. We're not just coming as emotional beings. We're coming holistically. And Jesus, or excuse me, I'll say, and God working through these heavenly creatures deals with both. Where do we see them? The resurrection is finally received holistically with hearts and minds in the hearts of the women when they hear, when they, it says, when they remember Jesus' words. When they remember Jesus' words. It wasn't the fact that they showed up at an empty tomb and took in that information. It wasn't the fact that there were angels there and they took that information. It wasn't the fact uh, that the angels were speaking to them that changed their minds. None of that evidence was enough to change their hearts. What changed their hearts, what gave them peace, that gave them assurance, what took them from despair to determination were the words of Jesus. They remembered the words of Jesus. And what were the words of Jesus? The angels quote. They say, they say the son of man, uh, they say, don't you remember the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise again? The angels are quoting Luke 18, and that's a place that Jesus was saying, this is what's going to happen. And in remembering Jesus' words, what they remembered was that Jesus was sovereign. Not only was he a good friend who was always faithful to them, but he was the sovereign Lord who was sovereign even over uh, those who would, uh, whose hands he'd be delivered into, even over crucifixion, and even over death itself, that he would rise again. The key word in that phrase, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. The key word in that phrase is must. Must. Jesus said, this must happen. And they took great peace because they saw in that moment, by remembering the words of Jesus, that what he said must happen, did happen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Of course they should. He's resurrected. He's not here. And there you have this holistic experience, both head and heart, being aligned for what it actually was meant to, meant to do, to live in light of God, to live out of love for God, to follow God. And of course, that's how faith comes about. Uh, Faith comes about by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, who is the author of life. So it might sound crazy to us that we would we change our lives based on the words of somebody who lived thousands of years ago and reported to rise from the dead. But it doesn't sound crazy if you know what the scriptures teach, which is that Jesus is the author of life. That his words call the world into creation, and his words the words that call your soul into meaning, identity. His words are the words you actually long for. His presence is the, is the presence we all long for. His presence is the presence we're seeking when we look for uh, 
when we look for things that you know cannot provide what um, we're actually most desiring for, and so we're we uh, so we re we receive the resurrection holistically when, when God works through our heart and our mind, and of course the resurrection is hard to sort of wrap our heads around, isn't it? I don't know about you, but the more I think about truth, or maybe the way, the way to say it is this, when I hear truth, I'm satisfied in my heart. I'm not just satisfied in my brain, but I'm satisfied in my heart. And therefore, today, thousands of preachers all over the world, they're going to talk a lot about uh, passages like this, and they're going to talk about the historicity of the resurrection, why you can trust it. Why you can trust it. And they're going to look at passages like this and they're going to say, you can trust the historicity of the resurrection because the, um, the account of the resurrection was reliant upon the testimony of women. And that doesn't sound like much to us today, but in that time and place, the testimony of women was invalid in courts of law. And yet the New Testament writers have no problem dignifying women have no problem with saying uh, this actually happened based on their testimony. And what scholars tend to say is they would never do that if they were trying to build a case. They would only do it if it had actually happened that way. Pastors all over the world are, are going to be talking about the, uh, the stone that was removed. How does a stone like that be removed? Stones like that were put in place by teams of animals or teams of, of soldier-like men. So the women come to the tomb hoping that somebody's going to be there to, to remove it. They can't remove it themselves. There's also a soldier there standing in place. Now, a Roman soldier standing in place was motivated by one real factor, and that is their life. A Roman soldier was told to crucify somebody. If they didn't crucify them, they were killed. A Roman soldier, if they were told to guard something, if that prisoner got away, and they were punished. It's a powerful motivation. No Roman soldier was going to look the other way as thieves come to steal the body. The stones rolled away. And the most. Why would Jesus, who later on walks through walls to be with his friends, why would he need to roll away the stone? Why couldn't he just walk through it? He could. He doesn't. Why? So that we can see in. The stone is rolled away not so that he could get out, it's so that we can get in, so that we can see for ourselves. He does it for us to see that he's not there, that he's risen. So these kinds of truths, those are super helpful. And they actually warm my own heart. It makes me think this is actually so weird, it's true. Because that's how truth actually is. <laughs> And on the road to Emmaus, when these two guys uh, ended up sitting with Jesus and talking with him, they didn't quite see him. He's resurrected. He looks a little bit different. Um, it's worth thinking about. Anyway, we'll keep moving forward. Uh, and they're sitting with him. And it, as he leaves, what do they say? As he unpacked the scriptures, didn't your hearts warm? As he unpacked the scriptures, did they know this book? This is a very dense theological book that takes your mind to understand. And what do they say? My heart was warm. 
the scriptures for the person in, in, in the first century was not just their personal story. It wasn't just their national story. It was the story of human history of all creation. And he's saying, when we met with him and he explained all of that, all the scriptures and as in how it related to him, your hearts were warped. So what is the resurrection? It's the beginning of a new age. It's hope for us. How do you receive it? You receive it by the power of God through your heart and through your mind. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, you know, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because I see it, I see everything else. So why does all that matter? Because you and I look for things, look for the living among the dead. Because that's a question that we should ask ourselves every day. And the choices that I make, how I choose my time, the things I turn to for comfort, for hope, security. As good as so many of those things are, if they're anything other than Christ, they will not last. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? We need an ultimate hope. We need the resurrection of Jesus. And with the resurrection of Jesus, we, we learn to live as a renewed human being, new human society, stewarding our thoughts, stewarding our emotions, our time, our agency in the world, anticipating the eventual new creation, knowing that that's a world we're still longing for. Christians should bring, uh, it matters because Christians should bring their whole hopeful selves to the world that's suffering and to do so with humility because we recognize and we believe in empty tomb, but we also see that there are so many tombs that are filled. And therefore, we hope, but we don't do it without the Spirit. Christians should bring their whole selves to the world and recognize there are tombs with bodies and there are tombs that are filled with dreams and aspirations and of people who place their trust in the wrong things and to come alongside them. And in the same way that Jesus did with those two uh, of his friends, befriend them. How long? Until their hearts are filled. Christians should live with a, with, a, with a hope that dismantles any fear of death. We should live in a way that though we know we're hard-pressed on every side, we also know that we're not crushed, that we're perplexed, but we're not in despair, that though we may be persecuted, but we know in Christ we're never abandoned, that we're struck down, yes, but we will never be destroyed. Because you're in Christ. Because you have a God who went to the cross for you. So he could die for you. And be raised to new life. With you. So Easter is that truth that transforms the church. And churches need to be transformed all the time. Churches very easily can become memorials in which we just constantly do the same thing over and over again, and we take what worked, and we just, we memorialize it. We say we can't ever change because it was so good in that particular day. But when you memorialize a church or you memorialize any community, you know what happens? It becomes a mausoleum. It becomes a place of the dead. But a church that focuses on the resurrection, a community that lives in light of the resurrection, doesn't become a... Uh, a memorial church or a mausoleum church it becomes a movement because life is happening within that community. 
Let that be true of us. Let us be a church that does uh, a community that lives similarly to, to these to these new uh, to this first century uh, Jewish community. They went from worshiping on Saturday night to worshiping on Sunday morning. And that was completely counterintuitive and, and contrary to their whole society. To live in light of the resurrection is to say, I am not living in light. I'm not walking with God so that I can get a little bit of help. It means I am dependent on God and I'm going to follow him. And that means I may be called in a completely different direction. That my life will look that different. look that different and I don't just need God on occasion but I I need him I need him every hour every morning every every evening and therefore Sunday is a day in which we come and we gather together and we give thanks and we recognize the needs of this world we hold close together and we rejoice in the Savior that died and rose for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you for Easter. Lord, we thank you that uh, as much as here, there's so much more to be discovered. Lord, would you teach us these things? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.